Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. Good to have you on the show, Ishab. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Amazing. I came across your uh, company while reading the news because you've shared your pitch deck, so we'll touch base on that. But before we dive deeper, need to introduce you. So Rishab Jain is the founder of Fermat, which is a platform that provides the tools uh, to enable what you call distributed commerce. Essentially, you help brands embed their shopping experience within the influencer network and if an influencer has an audience, they can now shop certain brands. And I think your model, and we can touch base on that, but the brands could license their products to these influencers and there's some sort of payment structure involved here. And to date, you have raised 12 million from Greylock and QED investors with participation from Courtside Ventures. So I want to give you the floor, explain to us what does Fermat do if we are an eight-year-old person? <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the way that I would describe what we do is basically we allow brands to make any content that they release in partnership with influencers, or actually now we do it for any content at all. We make that shoppable. So the whole idea is that if you're a brand, you're perhaps running ads on social media, you're perhaps doing content in partnership with influencers, you're perhaps doing advertorials, so you know articles that talk about your products. And really what we do is we make it possible that whenever you are seeing that content, so you're seeing an ad, you're seeing an article, whatever it is, the store experience where you complete the purchase is either directly embedded or native to that content. So imagine that instead of when I click on an article link, instead of getting redirected to the website, it just directly pulled in all of the information that I needed to know about that product. So it pulled all the product description information, it pulled the pricing, it pulled everything I needed to know, and then I could make the purchase directly in the article. That's the type of stuff that we do, is we just make any form of content shoppable. And we're very lucky, like you said, that we got really strong investors to join us to help us build out this vision. So are you powering the brand's, let's say, website? Or are you powering the influencer where they are, like they're on a platform like Instagram, and they're from there they could sell a brand that they've partnered with? Yeah, basically... The way that I would think about this is that instead of having one website for a brand, so I know, and you're going to have to just sort of, let's take this journey together in terms of like, hey, what is the future that we're building? So today, let's just say you're going and shopping at Nike. And so every transaction that you have with Nike, you have to go to nike.com and you finish the transaction there. When we say distributed commerce, what we're actually saying is that you don't need to go to nike.com. So instead, what you can do is you can finish the transaction directly inside of an article. You can finish the transaction directly inside of a post. You can finish the transaction one-to-one with an ad. So let's just say there's an ad where it's like somebody like me is wearing a Nike hoodie. And because I'm basically talking about, hey, it's like perfect for San Francisco weather, right? I'm just making something up. Then what would happen is 
when I click on that ad, the store that I get taken to is about the things that are appropriate for people like me in San Francisco weather. Because the problem statement is like, hey, if you're a person like Rishabh who's dealing with San Francisco weather, that's the reason you clicked on this ad. And so like the hoodie will be there. Maybe there's some joggers in there. Maybe there's some shoes that are appropriate for the kind of weather that we have here in San Francisco. And so the store gets merchandised accordingly. The content is native to the content that you came from. And so instead of every interaction going through a single central website, you want to fragment and distribute out the shopping experiences for your consumers. That's the core idea. So we're building the technology that allows for that to happen. So it's not actually powering the website, it's powering hundreds of websites. Got you. So take us back to the founding aha moment. How did you know that this is a pain point that actually needs solving? Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say that the main thing that actually happened was Apple decided that they were no longer going to allow tracking on the internet. So basically they said, hey, you can no longer track a user from one website to another. And when they said that, the reason why that's a problem is because today's internet is based on redirects. So you go to one place, you click on a link, it takes you to another place, you click on a link, it takes you to another place. By definition, if you don't track the user, you have no idea what's going on. And so... In my mind, what I was thinking is, hey, what would the internet need to look like if you don't have any tracking at all? And what would need to happen is one of two things. Either you would never need to redirect. So like we were talking about in the article example, you can actually purchase directly in the article. So you actually don't have to link out. Or if you do move to a different website, that website is one-to-one with the source. So let's just say somebody goes from the link in the Spotify podcast for this podcast, there's a link. And that link, that entire website is unique entirely to the link that you posted in Spotify. Then you know for sure that everybody who came to that website must have come from Spotify because nobody else can find that link anyway. And so that's how we thought about it is we started with the problem of how do you actually track people? And what's necessary in order to make the assumption that you can no longer track people, what is necessary in terms of the structure of the internet. And then e-commerce just became the first place that we're enabling our technology. Thank you for sharing the story. So you're building one of the hardest thing, which is a marketplace, because you're connecting brands to influencers. It's a chicken and egg problem. What comes first in your mind? How did you think about that? Yeah, so... First of all, I definitely agree building marketplaces is super hard. Since then, we actually don't participate in market making. So when we build tools to allow brands to create stores with their influencers, what we mean is we actually build the tooling to allow the brand to build the store with anybody. And so we actually don't do any market making at all. We sell directly to the brand and then the brand partners with whoever they want to, either they do influencer or they do advertorial or they they do whatever they want to and we help the brand make that shoppable now when it comes to influencer content i don't want to downplay how hard the market making is and the importance of it but we the way we participate in that is we partner with other really great companies so we partner with aspire with lumanu with other companies who actually do influencer matchmaking and those companies if you were to talk to them 
I think they start with the brand also. And then the brand is the side that actually has the work for the influencers. And so then that's where the demand gets created. And then the influencer is sort of the supply side, right? And so we participate in the ecosystem as we sell directly to the brand, but then the brand uses tools that are built by our partners in order to source the influencers. So essentially that your customer is the brand in that case. So if we were to think about that, the shows about your first hundred customers, yeah. how did you first source these customers? How did you convince them? Where do you find the decision maker when it comes to big brands or even medium brands? Walk us through your framework. Yeah, totally. So first of all, I think for any business, <laughs> the first like five to 10 customers it is very rare that they are buying your product. It is more likely the case that they are buying trust in the team. And so really what's happening is you're saying, hey, here's what our product should do, right? Because before you have any customers, the product doesn't do anything. You just have a belief that the product does something. And so what you're really selling is trust. Those first five to 10 customers, I would say that the only way you can sell trust is through referral. And so maybe you can like get incredibly lucky and somehow land a cold lead, but I think that that's highly unlikely or it's, it's rare, basically. Even if it's a very small number, there's at least a couple of people who you can sell trust to and say, hey, you should trust us. We know how to do this. Here's what we're building. Here's why we're building it. That's where your first few customers comes from. Now, from there, for us at least, what ended up happening is because the product worked so well, we ended up with a lot of referrals. So the majority of our early customer base came from referrals from our partner network and also from existing customers. So existing customers would see really strong ROI on usage of our product. And then the ad buyer would say, hey, can I actually take you to this other customer that I work with? And so all of our early customer acquisition was referral based and only in the beginning of 2023, did we actually start to do any marketing? Now we have some customers coming in through traditional marketing channels. So now we have a little bit coming from ads, a little bit coming from outbound and things like that. But the first customer set all came from network and then referrals. Amazing. How do you think about identifying your user persona? So when you start the business, everyone is in e-commerce from the big brands like Nike to the smallest, smallest mom and pop shops. How do you decide where to start and pick? Do I go big, but it's a longer sales cycle? Or do I go with the unknowns, but it's quick and easy? So in my opinion, early on, it's really hard to go big right from the start, unless you have confidence that that customer's needs are actually highly replicable to other customers' needs. And the reason I say that is if you're trying to build a product-based company, which is different than a services-based company, if you're trying to build a product-based company, the risk that you run is that that big customer wants something that's actually only useful for them, and it ends up not being particularly useful, or you have to re-architect in order to make it useful for the second customer and the third customer and the fourth customer. So that's just one person's point of view is that you have to be really careful about how are you actually getting inputs from a very large customer very early on, if that's what you're going to start with. The reason I like mid-sized customers 
personally is that the sales cycle is sufficiently short and you can get enough of them pretty quickly. So that way you can tell, hey, here are the sorts of things that are repeating a lot that should become core foundations to our product, right? At least for us, that's how we did it is we went to mid-market. We didn't go to enterprise right from the get-go. And we didn't go all the way to small either because at the very smallest scale, oftentimes what you will find is that there isn't sufficient sophistication to actually make sure you understand how you're going to end up selling in the first place. So even if you end up with a free product or like an SMB product, that's great. You probably just want to do that after you know how to do mid-market where people can actually pay you real money for your software. So that's how we thought about sort of like on the scale of small to enterprise, where do we want to focus? Because we're a very iteration-driven company. Again, different companies work in different ways, but for us, the thing that has been the most effective is just be extremely iterative very, very quickly and very, very deliberately. And so we have iterated many, many times, like even the beginning of this call, you had read up about us and we were doing largely influencer-based stores. And now we don't do that anymore. Influencer is only one component of what we do. We do general content-based shopping. You can tell that even in this conversation, hey, this company is iterating very fast and is continuing to evolve with its customer base at large. And so that's a little bit of like a long story, but that's sort of how I would answer your question on like, hey, how do we find the right customer base is just for us, we went mid-market first and then we iterated very fast. Amazing. You mentioned that your first few customers were primarily driven by referrals. If you were to dissect the anatomy of a successful referral, in your case, what were the key criteria that aligned all together so that it's a no-brainer that a customer would refer someone else? At least to me, the very first thing is that the product actually needs to work. You can't be selling something that doesn't have very clear ROI because a customer can't refer you if they cannot actually say, hey, look at what we saw happen for us. So that's the very first thing. The second thing is they need to know how to explain it. So it's not enough to show good ROI if they can't explain why they're getting that ROI. So imagine I came to you and I just said like, hey, I'm using tool X. And instead of making $4, I now make $5. I mean, the very first thing you're going to want to know is, okay, that's great, but is it going to work for me? It's great that it worked for you, but is it going to work for me? And the only way you're going to know if it works for you is if you get an understanding of the why. So it's like, hey, explain to me why instead of $4, you're making $5. And then I'll see if that why translates to my situation. And then the last thing is that you want to make sure that it's easy for them to send that referral to you. So it works. They can easily explain why. Can they easily send you the referral? So like they need to know that if they're going to refer someone, so let's just say I'm referring you to some third-party tool. It's like, do I know how to do that? And do I have confidence that when I do that, that it'll be handled appropriately? So to me, those are the basic three steps. And I think that the, (laughs) I think that like sometimes people overcomplicate it, which is like, hey, what is the incentive and this and that and like all sorts of like complexity. And I have found that simple referrals work way more smoothly than complicated referrals, at least in the early days. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you for sharing this framework. You recently shared your pitch deck online. I think I found it on Business Insider. Walk us through your thought process. 
why would you do that? What's the impact on the company? And when would you advise other founders to do the same? Yeah, so generally speaking, I think that if a competitor really wanted to know what you do, there's like a hundred ways for them to figure it out. So they could ask a friend to sign up for your service, right? They can ask one of their current customers to try your product and see what it's like. There's so many ways for competitors to figure out what you're doing that if the reason you're not sharing it is you're worried about competition, then that's just not a good reason. So, so, so that's the very first thing I would say is like, usually people are like, Hey, but you know, what about competition? It's like, yeah. I mean, if you're worried about competition, trust me, they already know everything. The other thing that I would say is that generally speaking, the reason why people don't publish anything. So whether it's a pitch deck or any other internal information is because they think, Hey, it's not polished enough, or I'll show up in this way. That's like slightly negative. I just think that usually it's the person posting it that has all of these concerns and the person reading it does not care. The fear that people have is like, hey, people are going to think these negative things about me. And I just think that generally speaking, most people just don't have the time to care about all those negative things. And then the final thing is like, hey, is there any benefit to posting it, right? So, okay, the two big downsides are like, is there something embarrassing or is it going to feed my competition, which I really don't think either of those are that interesting. But is there any benefit is the really big question. And I think that I belong to the school of thought where posting things publicly actually both does you good marketing and actually makes your competition feel like they're behind. And so my general opinion is that you should definitely post as much as you possibly can without it being a burden on your team. So it's like, hey, share whatever you can, share it however often you can. Just don't make it a burden on people to share. We're going to keep doing that. We've shared our pitch deck, like you said, and we share a lot of information about the company on LinkedIn. And my intention is to continuously do so. You recently posted on LinkedIn that you've replaced your CEO with ChatGPT. <laughs> So <laughs> share with us what was the reason? How did it impact the business? What was interesting outcomes that you've observed today? If it's still ongoing, this experiment? <laughs> no, 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 no. This was an April Fool's joke. I'm the CEO of the company. And so I was like, <laughs> hey, what we should do is we should just play like a fun April Fool's joke. I'll tell you one thing that's a little bit more on the serious side is I actually use ChatGPT for a surprising number of things in my work. So like I'll ask it to summarize things. I'll ask it to create plans. And it's very useful. It is very useful. It's like having a sidekick that's like pretty good at everything. Yeah. Not excellent at anything, but pretty good at everything. Amazing. So if you had the option, I think that that's going to come sometimes in the future. It's already like for the ChatGPT Plus, it's like $20. If that tool becomes extremely powerful, how much are you willing to pay for it? I mean, I pay the salary of a person for a person, right? And so that's roughly how I would think about it. Makes a lot of sense. Makes yeah. a lot of sense. Let's zag a little bit to reshape the person. So tell us a little bit, what is the most important principle that you've used that has made you successful both in maybe business or in your life? Yeah, I would say that the thing that I believe that I'm unusually good at is just being scientific. So 
I was actually a scientist before I moved into the world of business. So I got my PhD in solid state physics from MIT and I was a good scientist. My publication record from being a grad student is probably better than most professors actually. And the reason I was a good scientist is because I'm pretty good at knowing how to answer questions that are useful and interesting for other people. And I know how to set up processes to collect data against those questions at a very high cadence. So for example, even as a PhD student, you know, my publication velocity was significantly higher than the average PhD student, significantly higher impact than the average PhD student. And so that's like what I would say is the thing that I apply to every part of my life is I know how to ask questions that are relevant and I know how to collect the data upon asking that question in a way in which I can use that to get outcomes very fast. In that process, I'm entirely unattached to being correct. So for example, in my business, again, like I'll use this conversation as an example where we actually thought that the company was going to be doing more work with influencers than it ended up doing. So now we do it with any form of content. But the reason we're able to pivot so quickly is I just don't have any attachment to being correct. I didn't need the company to be an influencer company. I needed the company to solve a problem. And if influencers were the way to solve that problem, then great. And if there was some other strategy to solve that problem, then that's great too. And I'm not going to be opinionated for no reason. I'm going to be scientifically driven. And so we deploy lots of experiments into the market and then we listen to what the market says and then we change based on what the market says. And so I would say that that's the guiding principle throughout my life that has been beneficial to me. Who's your hero or someone who has impacted you in your life? I mean, so there's one person who I have never met, this Richard Feynman, he's a physicist. And the reason he has had such a big impact on me is he was very obsessed with this idea. It's called like the principle of least action. The way the physical world works is things will tend to follow the path that requires the least amount of energy for them or the least amount of action. So the principle of least action. And I guess like I, you would call me obsessed with that idea because that is the idea through which I view everything. And I think that he asked a lot of really interesting fundamental physics questions through that lens and developed a lot of interesting theories and things like that. And so I would say like he is somebody who has like very much influenced, again, never having met him, but he's somebody who's very much influenced the way that I think about things. Thank you for sharing this principle. Definitely Richard Feynman is I think a Nobel Prize winner, and he was one of the greatest uh, thinkers. I recently created a post on my newsletter called Principles Friday about one of his principles, which I release in in few weeks, and it's really impactful around not only the physics part, also the philosophy. It was it was a big thinker from that angle. One last question, Rishab: What's next for your company? Yeah. I mean, there's really two big things for us. So the first one is that this year is all about scale. We have a pretty strong existing customer base and we're seeing a lot of demand for the product. So we're trying to scale as quickly as we possibly can. And then alongside that, I think, and I hate to be cliche about this, but I think like every other startup, the number one question we're asking is how does 
the new tools in generative AI create impact on our business? And what are things that we can do to help our customer base, given what these new tools unlock? And so those are for sure the two things that are coming in our future. Thank you, Rishab, for being part of our podcast. This was amazing. We wish you the best of luck. How can people reach you and find you online? Yeah, thank you. This was really, really great for me too. And thanks for the super interesting questions. If anybody wants to reach me, I'm very easy to find. I'm just Rishab M. Jane, so my full name, on either LinkedIn or Twitter, and very active on both. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great evening. Thanks, you too. Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers. 